0: Oh, left fielders, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently.
1: Let's go. I learned buying value add multifamily real estate was some of the best risk adjusted return of all the options out there in the real estate marketplace. Simply because it's a roof over somebody's head, there's always demand for it. You can get the best debt in, available in the markets, which takes a lot of risk off the table. And I learned about forced appreciation and economies of scale and thought, well, why would you want to buy small assets when bigger ones, more zeros, make more sense?
0: Very excited to have Travis Smith, founder and CEO of TribeVest, which is an online platform that facilitates small group investing. Travis formed his first tribe with his brothers to try to grow their wealth through alternative investments. Helping others invest together became a passion of Travis's, and TribeVest was born. And now he has hundreds of tribes investing millions of dollars into all types of assets and businesses. Travis, can you share some of the ways TribeVest helps build wealth for passive
1: investors? I go back to when my brothers and I were first thinking about forming our, our first investment tribe. Prior to that, we invested in our 401ks. And that's all we knew. But everybody we knew that was wealthy was invested in real estate or owned a business. And by us coming together to form an investor tribe, pulling our capital, put us in a position to invest in real estate, to start a business. TribeVest gives people the ability to come together and do more
0: than they would or could on their own. Can you tell us how listeners can get in touch with you? Absolutely. They can come to TribeVest.com. I love the origins of how TribeVest started with you and your brothers. Thanks for that, Travis. If you want to learn more about TribeVest, visit them at www.tribevest.com slash partners slash LF and get your first $50 deposited in your Tribe's bank account.
2: You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community.
1: This is Dan Hanford from PassiveInvesting.com, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. I'm very pleased
0: today to have Ivan Barrett with me. He's a multifamily owner, manager, and syndicator who specializes in large apartment communities in the Midwest. Since 2015, he's raised nearly $100 in equity and acquired over 5,000 multifamily units. Today, Ivan focuses his time on equity finance, acquisitions, and company strategy for BAM. Currently, his company manages nearly 593 million in syndicated assets. Ivan, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast.
1: Hey, Jim. It's good to be here, man. Been looking at this on my calendar for a little while now, and I'm excited the the time has come.
0: Yeah, me too. We've we've been planning this for a while, as you said, and I'm excited about our conversation today. And I would like to start that conversation as we always do at uh, the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast with kind of your journey. How'd you get into Real estate. How'd you get into syndication? How'd you get to where you are today?
1: Well, first, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to get on my team. They've got to update our bio once again, as we've uh, eclipsed 150 million in equity that we've deployed successfully into real estate deals. Four time on the Inc. 5000 list now. It started with house hacking a duplex, and even before that, I'm pretty lucky, Jim. I have a dad. Who had rental properties. When I was growing up, my brother and I were his landscaping arm all summer long. He'd drag us to his rental properties to mow yards for free. I had an uncle who was a realtor, but also owned apartments on the side, and another uncle who didn't even finish ninth grade of high school, but became very successful with car washes, gas stations, and a lot of commercial real estate along the way. So at a young age, I got this exposure to an entrepreneurial path, saw what real estate can do for a lifestyle, and it just made sense to me. And so early on, I I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had always wanted a big company and started and stopped for a while. Really didn't know early on how to get there. Finally, though, after working for a mentor for about eight years and having a front row seat to the GFC, the, the great financial crash. And seeing all the, the uh, issues that can happen in a down market, which of course ended up being a, a fantastic lesson in my late 20s, one of the best gifts uh, of my career was having a front row seat to that market. But through that, I decided after modeling some other companies that my path to growing a big company one day would start in management. So I, I started my own management company in my spare bedroom in 2010 called Baird Asset Management. Today, we're the, we're the band companies. And I, I grew it one freaking unit at a time, man. I was buying a few deals on my own, some little multifamily deals with hard money. Then I started taking on a few investors uh, to buy some some slightly bigger deals. At the same time, I'm growing a, a management arm for other investors. Uh, it's a great way for me to to scale, which was to offer to deal with the tenants and the toilets for other people that didn't want to do that. And I started. Just growing and going up the ladder and getting some larger deals. My first big apartment deal was six. Then from there, I went to 35 units with uh, just one investor, bought another 30 unit. Then I bought a 15. And uh, my next deal was a, a full-on syndication where I brought in some investors. Again, at the same time, growing third-party management services for other clients and really making this, every mistake under the book in, in managing property, but not making the same one twice. Too often, and learning how to how to manage and find the right people, how to build teams, how to scale the business to what we are today, which now most of that credit for BAM and the BAM companies today actually uh, is deserved deserved to go to my people, the the culture, the team that we've created, the the folks that are managing the assets at the highest level of the uh, of the org chart, all the way down to the maintenance and the leasing. In the property management on site in our communities, it's been one heck of a ride so far. But we are just getting started.
0: Yeah, that, that's fantastic. That's a great story. And I, I want to circle back to the uh, the financial crisis. You said you yeah. learned, you had a row seat, right? So you, you learned Went all row. kinds of all kinds of things. Can you tell me a couple of those things that you learned during that crisis? And then looking forward, do you see maybe not that exact same thing happening again? But with the assets all inflating in price, do you see something coming? And if so, what? Or do you think we can just kind of keep on going? So I guess that's a couple of questions all wrapped into one there for you.
1: Well, we could spend a whole podcast on those questions, couldn't we, Jim? But I'll I'll do my best to to keep it short and sweet. What I learned firsthand was that most real estate ventures are more speculative in nature, right? I was on a development team. We were acquiring land, getting it entitled. Developing the land, working with builders to build on that land, right, and then hopefully selling it for a profit at the end. And in most deals or most business plans, speculation is a big part of it. At the same time, you know, when all this stuff started crashing and values were were plummeting and equity was basically being vaporized, I saw multifamily firms with in-house manager teams getting bigger and stronger, and they were also able to ride through on on the assets that they had because people still needed a place to rent. Hotels, restaurants, retail, speculative development was was um for all intent and purposes in a bloodbath, right? Multifamily sort of got through it in a large part because in large part because of the debt that you can get on multifamily. They had long-term fixed-rate debt attached to those to those properties. So what you saw in the in the GFC, a lot of developers and property investors were getting calls from their banks saying, "Hey, uh, we're calling your loan. What do you mean? I've been making the payments, I'm cash flowing. Why are you calling my loan? Well, we're just not in the business of loaning on those assets. Well, I can't refinance it with somebody else, Mr. Banker, because no one is is loaning on real estate right now, right? And if I sell it, everybody else on the blocks for sale, oh, I'm going to take this huge hit, and all of a sudden we've got this this massive real estate correction, uh, except really in multifamily. Multifamily had some softness because. Tenants who couldn't qualify for an apartment could go right across the street and get a, a ninja loan and buy a house. I'll remember those days. That's not coming back anytime soon. Uh, as far as what's going on right now, well, let me let me back up. So that really led me to just strengthen my investment thesis and really crystallize it around multifamily, buying existing assets, improving the, the value of those assets, with a new manager team, new capital to make improvements, those sorts of things. I learned and saw that in, in my humble opinion, buying value add multifamily real estate was some of the best risk-adjusted return of all the options out there in the real estate marketplace. Simply because it's a roof over somebody's head, there's there's always demand for it. You can get the best debt in available in the markets, which takes a lot of risk off the table. And some, some other factors like that that really drew me towards apartments. And I learned about forced appreciation and economies of scale and thought, well, why would you want to buy small assets when bigger ones, more zeros make more sense? And that was the beginning with the end in mind and starting small and learning and failing small that helped me get to where we're at today. As far as looking out on the horizon, I mean, nobody's got a crystal ball. These things typically end in some sort of correction. Asset inflation could go on, though, for a while. As the world is awash in capital, there's a lot of money searching for yield, a lot of capital out there looking for a safe harbor in desperate search of yield. I think people often misjudge how long these things can run for. My bet is we're going to see lower interest rates for for the foreseeable future. Assets such as multifamily and other financial assets will be in high demand for a while. Who knows for sure, which is why as an investor, I think it's very important to hedge your bets. So we we look at assets, we've got a high debt coverage ratio. We look at assets in markets with good school districts, diverse employment, and we get the sort of debt on our properties that give us that downside protection in the event that assets would fall in price. Multifamily is one of the best, like again. I didn't say it earlier, but another great advantage of multifamily is you can hold on to it longer because of that long-term debt, right? I don't, I don't have to necessarily sell it in a short period of time. If, if four years from now, we're ready to sell, I think, let's see, our second fund, and it's 2008 2.0, I don't have to sell those assets the way we're set up, right? We can hold them and wait for the market to cycle through that downturn. So instead of being forced to sell into a bad market, we're buying additional assets. And all those things together, for me, make me wonder why, I, at least for me, why I would do anything else than, than what I'm doing. I'm, I'm hyper-focused on my model as an active operator and fund manager. Can you talk a little bit more about the the debt issue?
0: Because that was one of the big problems in 2007, 2008. Now we're seeing a lot of bridge lending that you know, I think people are hopeful that when those loans come due, they can refinance into more standard debt positions. And then you also mentioned the high debt service coverage ratio. So, can you just for all of our listeners, can you explain what you mean by that? And then talk a little bit about the debt you're seeing in this market, and and how you're structuring it on your deals to avoid the problems that we we had, you know, over a decade ago.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that back up because I didn't get to it. Right? You asked me a whole mouthful of question there. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> I like to ask all my questions at once. That's right. So, what's different now is. The Federal Reserve and the the government, the fiscal, the government, the monetary, the Federal Reserve, they saw the the, the abyss in 2008. They saw what could have been the next Great Depression. People can hate on the Fed and call them whatever they want, but they saved us from a Great Depression. We had a, a deep recession, right? Then the mother of all corrections comes, COVID, and we have the largest drop in GDP in recorded history. And it was a blip on the radar. Now, how was how that possible? Well, the Fed basically got their playbook from the last Great Depression. It played in 2008. And because of that, they were able to go back to fiscal, the government, and say, listen, we have to liquefy everything, or this is going to make 2008 look like you know a, an afternoon rainstorm. And so they liquefied everybody. They put a lot of money in the market, they shorted up the banks of the hotel guy. You know, the hotel operator didn't get that call from his bank saying, Hey, I'm calling your hotel loan. And all of a sudden loot nets full of, of hotels that are for sale for 40 cents on the dollar because they can't finance them. So if the Fed figured this out, and, and this is their new their new playbook, their new modus operandi for now, is to keep these markets liquefied because they would rather inflate and slowly destroy the dollar over time or debase the currency than see deflation. Take hold, which is what happened in '29, and which is what's still happening to a great extent now in most parts of the economy, thanks to technology. Kathy Woods a great person to listen to. She's got a great thesis on the, the deflationary forces out there that are that are sort of a governor on on the growth of the economy. Bridge debt, I, I hear guys talking all the time. You know, bridge debt's bad. Bridge debt's bad. Bridge debt is a tool. I personally love bridge debt because I can get it direct from a NASDAQ traded that only loans to me because I go to them for permanent loans. Whereas most bridge debt borrowers are going to an intermediary or a broker, they're paying more for their bridge debt, and then that guy's going to my bank and saying, "Hey, can I have a a warehouse line to loan these guys money?" So I don't want to paint bridge debt as too broad of a brushstroke. It depends on who you're getting it from and and the the Covenant's that bridge debt It's a very good tool if used properly, but as you alluded to, if used improperly, it's it can be extremely destructive. Definitely plenty of bridge lenders out there. Their strategy, Jim, as you well know, is, is loan to own. They want to loan you that money and they'd love to see you fail and come in and take that asset. Your your LPs, their money goes poof and the uh, the lender takes the asset. That's opportunistic real estate. The debt coverage that we could borrow at is anywhere from 125 to say 135. And for, for your audience, it's basically your NOI is covering how much of your debt payment. So we, we like to come in with, with an NOI that's more like one and a half, 1.6, 1.7 times what our debt payment is coming in. So typically we're using a little bit lower leverage. We're raising more equity in the beginning. To lower that leverage and have a higher debt coverage, so that things like um, like our occupancy break even would be say in the high 50s, low 60s. That's part of a risk management tool. These days, and you, I think you're going to start hearing this more from a lot of operators. We're not really using agency debt right now. We're using Wall Street bank debt from multi-billion dollar banks. Because number one, I know they're now going to be protected by the Fed. The Fed is not going to let these guys fail. The whole system is too big to fail, so we're not going to have another 2008. Two, the banks will give me terms, just like the agencies will, except for one important thing, and that's the prepayment. So I've got a deal right now. I'd love to sell Jim. We bought it for 25. I think we could sell it for 35, 36 million now. The prepayment six million bucks, yeah, six million. Like okay, I guess we're gonna hold this one for a while, right? Yeah, it limits your choices, right? And so now I've got a I've got a lender again, one of the biggest Fannie Mae Freddie originators in the country. I think they're number seven. They also own a bank. They own a big bank. And They're like, listen, man, we'll give you interest-only financing. We'll give you the leverage you want. We'll give you the term you want. But it's 1% prepayment penalty after, say, a year, maybe two-year lockout. And then then it's really flexible. So that allows us to manage the risk on the debt. But also, as we execute our business plan, whether we execute it quicker than we thought, five years right on time, or it takes a little bit longer, something happens and we want to hold and not sell. In any of those scenarios, we could refinance or sell that asset, which is typically our plan is to uh, to exit the asset and then go find a new opportunity. We're able to do all those things and not be constrained by a debt vehicle that we're locked into.
0: I'm a passive investor. Most of our network are passive investors. When we are talking to a syndicator or trying to analyze a deal, how do we figure out if you have the good debt, the bad debt, if you have the bridge lending deal that is, is the good kind, or if you have the one that's you know has someone predatory that's trying to take your deal, how do we figure that out when we're trying to analyze a deal or
1: a sponsor? That's a great question. I, you know I'm trying to figure out in, in my marketing materials and in my conversations how I make sure you, the investor knows that not all bridge debt is the same. So we're, we're trying to to show that in our in our deals, hey, this is where our bridge debt comes from because what we don't want to happen is is Jim to say, oh, I see the word bridge debt, throw that deal in the trash, right? Right. But like, hold on a second. Wait, this is this is not your group that just got out of a seminars last weekend's bridge debt. This is a different kind. I wouldn't even call it bridge debt. We call it semi-permanent debt. That's what we call it because we don't want, even though you might define it as bridge debt, we don't want to scare anybody. You've got this spectrum. It's like, yeah, so, so from the passive side, I would say just digging deep, right? Asking those questions, getting the, the investor relations team or the sponsor on the phone and saying, Tell me more about your debt. Why do you why do you like the debt you're using? What's your strategy behind your, your debt? It's the same thing with leverage. I've heard passive investors say, Oh, I don't do anything above this percentage of leverage. The big lenders out there don't look at leverage, they look, they actually look first at debt coverage. Because debt coverage is actually more important than than a leverage as a percentage. They want to know, well, how much margin do you have above your payment every month? And that's that's the for the big lenders, which are the biggest investors out there. They're my biggest investor on the deal. That's how they look at it. So maybe my short answer, Jim, is is learn to look at it like the big boys.
0: I should have asked you this earlier, and I've, I've gotten some feedback on the podcast, that sometimes we use terms that people don't understand. So can you step back and explain what bridge debt is? What's the purpose of, of the standard bridge debt, where it originated
1: from? Yeah. So bridge is a term... To get somebody across a certain span of time in this case, right, it's, it's shorter term debt used typically to get you across to a, a more permanent debt. So an example, sponsors that are looking to acquire, add enough value to refinance, hold the property, but return your capital and continue to hold it after that is what I should have said. They might use a bridge loan to get to the point where they can refinance it to pull cash out and put more permanent debt on it. A, a bridge, gets you somewhere uh, across some, some span of time versus across a, a, a body of water or a, a creek or a river. Now, I would also call that scenario lazy capital. I don't like cash out refis where you return capital and hold it forever. I think that's a, it's an okay model, but it's, I think it's lazy capital, personally.
0: And then you introduced a new term. So I'd like to uh, ask you what you mean exactly by lazy capital.
1: Yeah. Okay. I'll give you a good, a good example. So we had a deal, Fountain Park. Bought it three years ago and worth a lot more than we paid for it. So we bought it, say, for um, about $18 million and we could sell it for 25 or refinance it for 25 So here's what I had my team do. We put together an analysis of, if I refinance it, everybody would get 1x back, right? For this example, they get their money back, but they still own the deal and still make distributions. Let me reverse this. If I sell it, they make 2.3x, okay? About a 32 or 34% IRR in in three years, 2.3x. If I refinance it, I give everybody 1x back. You've got your money back tax-free, but that other 1.3x that you've left in the deal is now going to yield 4% because of the new leverage on the property. Jim, would you rather have 2.3 extra money to go back out there and invest in a new deal that hopefully will get an IRR of 15 or 20 or 25 or 30? Or do you want to leave your money in a deal that's making 4%? Yeah.
0: And I think the prevailing opinion right now with a lot of syndicators is once you give me my 1x, you give me my capital back tax-free, I go put that in a new deal. And I, my return on the old deal is infinite, right? But the way you explain it is you're missing out the upside. If you had sold it, you get that 2.3x return. You can put that whole 2.3x in a new deal. Now you've got more capital going into a
1: new deal. So you know, it depends on how you explain it, right? You nailed it. Yeah. So what I like doing is I do the math. It's, called, it's a simple return on equity calculation. I'm no longer looking at cash on cash. I'm looking at how much equity do I have sitting here, and when I when I say equity, I mean if I sold it today and I walked out of the closing table, how big's the check after all the expenses and everything else, right? And I look at that and say, how much cash flow am I getting against that check I could have, and for my capital, I want to be making at least a 15% annualized return because I want to grow my capital. Yeah. So if, if so, if it's sitting in a real estate deal and it's only yielding you know four or five percent, it's just not working hard enough for me. So for me, as an operator, I wanted to say, okay, investors, we're going to sell this deal. We're going to harvest, right? Now's the time to harvest. And we're going to time it so that we find a new opportunity where we have a high conviction of being able to do the same thing again. And oh, by the way, guys, if you reinvest, most of that is not taxable. Not all of it, but most of it's not taxable because of the the big losses that you and your audience know that we can extract in year one on a new deal.
0: Yeah. I love the way you're looking at this because for so long we've been saying refinance as soon as possible, get your capital back, yeah, you got infinite returns. Put your new cap, your old capital into a new deal, rinse and repeat. And you know I think there's still a lot of validity in that approach. But the way you explained it, if you can get that 2.3x and put your capital in a new deal and do it again, do it again, do it again, you're going to beat the infinite returns of the other guys doing it your way. And I've just never heard it
1: expressed that way and it's pretty powerful. Jim, one day, many many moons from now, when I've got more money than I need and my kids and my grandkids and so on and so forth are taken care of, I will be happy to put it all in a deal that safely makes 4 to 5%. That day is not today, my friend.
0: Well, that's another good point because there are people who are already in that position that'll take the easy 4 to 5% because that's all they need and there's other people that are in the growth area where you want to build your wealth so you can you can get to the easy part later right so i think i
1: think each strategy is for a different person we're paying 10 for that right now some other investor groups wouldn't not wouldn't but i i didn't have a platform like this with you to get on podcasts and do the math but i'd love to now you know part of our fund we're paying 10% paid monthly and getting some huge checks from very smart investors that love that it's only 30% of our equity the other 70% is standard syndication. You get a seven prep. It's mostly loaded on the back end, you know, 15, 20% target returns or more. But now we've got this 30% of the equity that gets a 10% coupon starting day one. And that's for those investors that are looking for for yield that have already made their capital. And we're getting some big checks in that format.
0: And that doesn't have the upside, right? That's just 10%, no upside.
1: Now, the 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 other guys might get, say, 3% the first year. They're waiting for the big pop when we sell it. But for 30% of the equity, maybe 35%, depending on the deal, we offer a coupon with no upside, but it pays 10% yield monthly. And that's not interest income. That's still equity. So you still get your losses, which you can defer indefinitely in that format. And we're getting a lot of traction with that that 10% coupon.
0: And how does that sit in the capital stack? So I assume that's a different share class, maybe A A class, B class. Yep. Does that mean that the A shares, we'll call them, they get the 10% and they get paid first before the B
1: shares? So it's it's leverage, in fact, to the B shares? It's still treated as equity. In a liquidation, A and B are the same. So they would get pro rata what whatever comes off in a liquidation. But the first 10% coming out of the deal is paid to those 30%, the 30% of the equity, A shares. And the B shares are saying, hey, I'm going to give up my cash flow today for a bigger upside down the road because now I've got fewer B shares waiting for the upside, right? I've separated cash flow and capital gains. And a lot of people are blending, some of both. It's not leveraging the way that debt works, but it does juice the returns for the Bs because there's less B shares waiting for the upside. And I've got this this percentage of folks that have already made their money. They're just looking for safe yield. 10% is more than they're going to get anywhere else. And they're happy with their, with their 10 because it pays in the beginning.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great approach. And more people are doing that. I have not seen one at 10% yet though. So that, that's pretty exciting. But the I guess where there's an upside, there's a downside, right? So the potential downside to the B shares is if there's nothing left over, if the deal doesn't perform to pro forma, and there's nothing left over after the 10%, they could theoretically have a lower payout than they uh, that they might not get to the pref, right? I mean, is
1: that a possibility? Oh, it's definitely a possibility. Absolutely, you still gotta bet that the sponsor of that deal, me in this case. You know, based on my track record and my history, that I am going to execute the business plan,
0: right? And and that of course, if you're investing, if we're investing with you, we we assume (laughs) and hope that you will do that. So that that makes sense. I want to step back away from the debt conversation, which was fascinating. And you mentioned forced appreciation earlier on in the conversation because you're doing value add. Can you talk a little bit about what forced appreciation is and and how you go about
1: doing it? In this market, what people are starting to realize is there's a few ways to skin that cat. Forced appreciation is when you're adding a dollar, say, annually to the bottom line, to the NOI, the net operating income. Whether you're saving a dollar or you're increasing rents by a dollar or some ancillary income, that dollar is worth 17 to $20 uh, when you go to sell the unit, or excuse me, when you go to sell the, the asset. So a lot of a lot of operators are looking for deals where they can come in and they can fix up a rundown or an older property, right? They can they can make renovations to the units, the amenities, and they can force that appreciation. Our niche right now in this market, I don't know how long it's gonna last, but we've been able to find tertiary markets with new construction where we're buying from a developer or like a mom and pop builder where there's not only room to raise rents as concessions burn off and residents move out or renew. We're able to reduce expenses because of our vertical integration. We're a lot more tech savvy. There's some stuff we're doing that I'm not going to tell you, Jim. My team's not allowed to tell you either on the expense side that everybody's going to find out sooner or later. But it is as big as Rubs was in the 80s, 90s, and maybe early 2000s. Tell us what Rubs are real quick. Yeah, and Rubs resident utility build back services right, where you're billing back utilities. That was a huge forced appreciation play in the last decades. This this is another one we're doing on the operating side. And we're also looking at specific tertiary markets that are growing. Thanks to COVID, these trends of moving to smaller markets with good schools and you're not tied down to where your job is located. For instance, we just closed on 300 brand new apartments in Grimes, Iowa, which is a wonderful suburb of Des Moines. Apple and Microsoft, between the two of them, $5 billion in data center construction underway. They're about halfway through a $5 billion economic investment, huge concentration of insurance companies. This little suburb has 28% projected white-collar population job growth over the next five years. You think I'm going to be able to raise rents there? And What I'm buying now, thanks to the supply chain and labor issues, is still below replacement costs. So it's going to be harder for new competition to come in. Um, and so we're finding these deals, again, where these three things I told you about, saving money, still able to raise rents, and in markets that are growing, those three things are still getting me that 200 to $250 rent bump, right? Which you already know is all I need for my model to at least hit its minimum return objectives. And we're not having to renovate we're just yeah. running it better. Hey, left fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from TribeVest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pyfer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications, to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy. Until recently, if I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up TribeVest on YouTube. I'll see you there.
0: You know, everyone's buying in Dallas, Phoenix, and Atlanta, and you're doing the the tour through the Big 10, right? You're you're in Iowa yeah. <laughs> and and Indiana and and all those other places. So, is that your strategy? Is it more of a post-COVID thing or were you already into the into the kind of big 10 college town idea.
1: I love the Midwest story. I think the the Midwest is slowly coming or, or decoupling from its Rust Belt moniker. You've got these, you've got advanced manufacturing, logistics, financial services, some really great places to live, Indianapolis, Des Moines. They're relatively smaller cities, but there's, their, their growth curve is just coming up a little bit. And it's the tortoise versus the hare approach they don't boom, but they don't bust. They're often looked over by some of these institutional capital that are chasing the hot markets. So yeah, if people want to go buy in Texas and buy on a you know a three cap or even sub three cap in hope that they can hit their investment returns. That's that's fine. I'm the, the Midwest value investor finding much better yields, and you know the rents aren't all that much lower where I'm going than than where these guys are buying.
0: Yeah talk about the, the fund model. Why a fund model? Why not individual assets? I know you've been doing funds for a while. It's becoming more popular. You know, A lot of the single asset syndicators are now doing funds. So what's the attraction of a fund versus a
1: um, single asset? So the advantage to me as the sponsor for the fund is my life is better because my capital raise is always ongoing. It's no longer, we found a deal. We got to hurry up and hustle and raise. 20, 25 million of equity because we're going after these big deals, right? So we're always in raise mode, building up the dry powder. So when that big game shows itself, we're we're ready to fire. So we can go after bigger deals. And we've got a much longer capital raise runway, much more efficient, way more effective for me. I don't have to cancel vacations because I found a deal. I don't have have to get a low score and being a dad and being a husband because I found a deal. And I I had that moment where we had two deals at once and I had to sell one of them to a private equity group and they're they're a great partner, but I couldn't offer them to all my LPs because I didn't have time to raise the money. And I said, never again. For you, the investor, you get more diversification. You're not just buying into one deal, you're spreading your capital across a portfolio of assets. You no longer have to worry, is this Ivan's next home run or is it the next deal he hasn't told me about? You're participating in all of them. We don't cherry pick. If they fit the fund mandate, they go in the fund. You're getting downside protection and, and diversification. And because two of the five should do better, maybe maybe three of the five, and fund one, it's going to be a home run all around. Fund two is already off to an amazing start. You're going to have a... And for one other reason, when I sell a portfolio of assets up the food chain to a much bigger fish, there's huge fish out there in this business, it's like selling one Chipotle versus 10. Big companies pay a premium for scale. So all these things amount to lower risk and a higher probability of a higher return to the LP. So what I've just done is I've created alpha for my investors by lowering risk and and increasing, hopefully, the probability of higher returns.
0: That all sounds great. Now, if I'm a passive investor, how do I analyze your fund? Because you know, left field investors, we have tools. Yeah, we we can analyze a single deal because we punch it into our deal analyzer and it. Shows us the metrics and we say, okay, we're good to go, or or maybe we have some questions. But yeah. and we put a lot of time into analyzing the sponsor first, of course. But with the fund, it's more we have to really trust that you're on your game for each deal, right? So how, how does a passive investor, or how would you, if you were a passive investor, decide? Okay, I'm going to invest in this in this sponsor's fund. What's the analysis there?
1: You hit the nail on the head. The one thing, the, the one little bridge that we have to get over is you have to trust me that I'm going to do what's in your best interest, I think what helps build trust is the fact that the sponsor's track record is their number one asset. It's even more valuable to me than money is my asset. If I start doing bad deals, it's going to be really hard for me to keep my flywheel turning. How I've gone so far so fast is because I deliver superior returns to my investors, which creates loyalty. And those investors attract more investors. The number one source of my investors is referrals. I mean, I, I advertise and I get on podcasts and that, that brings some more capital in the, in the door. But the number one source is still current investors that are satisfied with what we do. What we, how we go farther to build that trust is we have a, a, an audit, a third-party national accounting firm audit the books every year and one thing we're working on right now to go out even farther in that marketplace and say hey here we are and here's why you can trust us is we're going to audit our track record. So we're going to have all our all our exits, a national accounting firm is going to look under the hood and say we performed an audit and these returns that Bam Capital is advertising are correct and accurate. And so is it for every investor? No, but I think I think for a lot of passive investors out there who can Bet on the sponsor, and trust the sponsor, and analyze the sponsor, and underwrite the sponsor fit really well into a fund format. If the investors got to look at every deal and they want to see all the data and ask me a hundred questions about the deal, then I'm just not the right fit anymore.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to recognize that and, and be upfront about that. But what you said about the referrals is exactly what we've been talking about at Left Field Investors. Yeah. Is that there's nothing more important than finding a community or a network that can point you to syndicators that we know like and trust right that's a, that's a huge part of what we do because the syndicator is is probably the most important thing more important than the deal more important than the market because you have to get the sponsor right and i've kind of taken the approach i didn't start out this way but you know everybody learns as they go and the one thing i've learned is i'm probably not investing in very many sponsors anymore that were not referred to me by someone that I know, like, and trust, and that has already invested in their deal. That is how I can at least jumpstart the, the process of that trust transfers. And so now I can, st- I still evaluate you as a sponsor, but knowing that one or two or three or four other people have already invested with you and have had a good experience. That's huge for me because it kind of just overtakes everything. And that's my new approach is I'm only going to Talk to sponsors that, that are referred to me. Now, I shouldn't say only because there may be other cases, but in general, that that's my new philosophy.
1: I personally think that's a great strategy and I think great sponsors work really hard at having a, a large community of LPs that say, yeah, you know, they're they're doing what they say they're gonna do. When they've got bad news, they deliver it right away, right? They're clear, they're transparent. If I have something, a question, I get a response quickly. You know, they're looking for feedback to make themselves better. I got a guy on the phone right now. His job is to make 10 investor calls a day and say, hey, how are we doing on a scale of one to 10? And if they don't say 10, okay, what would make us a 10? And that's his job right now. And there's a lot of great sponsors out there that are doing that because we know that if we treat our investors right, it's good to great. It's right behind me. I know your your audience can't see it, but as we're talking, yeah. it's that flywheel concept. If I can create client loyalty, if I can, if I can lead the field... And how we treat our investors, and what we in 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 our communication, and deliver those returns, that they're going to send me more investors. My dad, the attorney, he built the whole law practice on his own that way, just treating clients well. What do you know? You get more clients. It's um, it's not rocket science. It just it takes a while, but once you have that momentum, it's almost an unstoppable force. And that's why great sponsors protect their track record because once you get it going. It can be so powerful, but you know it's the old saying: you can wreck that thing in five minutes by doing an obviously bad deal just because you're um, you're wanting to do deals.
0: Yeah, and I can't agree with you more. You know, finding a sponsor that communicates effectively and gives me the good news and the bad news in a timely fashion is super important because there's nothing worse than having to track someone down, whether it's to find out if things are going great or going horribly. I just want to know, and if you can be
1: transparent and communicate. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. My, that 60-unit deal I told you about, my first syndication, so many things went wrong on that deal. And you know, my investors were giving me the opportunity, hey, is it, the market's not working. You can't raise rents like you thought you could. Like, what's going on? It's like, no, this is our fault. It's my management team. We're dealing with it. We got a new plan. Here's what we're doing to, to fix it. And being being transparent about that is why those investors are still with me today a couple of them with a, a lot more money than they had in that deal. And that was, my, uh, that was my lowest IRR. It was a four-year hold, and the IRR was 17. And, uh, well, that's, that's not true. That 30-unit deal I did with one investor, that was my lowest. That was a nine. I bought a D property. Oh, geez. Thinking it was a C. But I just paid tuition, and we made a 9% IRR in five years. And uh, I'm happy to say BAM investor number one is, is still with me today. And he said to me, you know, you don't take a good pitcher out just because he had a bad inning. And that was because when I had bad news, I delivered it quickly, just like uh, Don Corleone says, you know, got to deliver bad news in person (laughs) right away.
0: There you go. Well, with that, the final question I ask on the podcast is, I don't know if you're a podcast listener or not, but regardless, can you recommend a podcast or two in the real estate space or anywhere else
1: that you listen to and think our audience would, would like as well? Uh, Love podcasts. I read read a lot of books lately. I've got an amazing platform for you. It's not a podcast. It's a video platform. You can listen to the audio files like a podcast. It is called Real Vision. Real Vision is a macro investor ecosystem. Why I listen to it a lot is because there's a lot of general investment ideas on there, and I get a lot of differing opinions. So one week there, they have guests on that are talking about why deflation is happening. And the next week, it's inflation is the trend. And they're fighting back and forth on crypto is amazing and crypto is awful and China is rising. No, China is falling. And there's just all these differing opinions on this important subject matter of finance and global economics and, uh, and masterclasses in investment. If you want to feed your brain on how to be a, a better investor, I think it's a great platform. It's not cheap. They do put out some free content. I think it's worth its weight.
0: Excellent. I'll definitely put that in the show notes. And then if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that?
1: Um, pretty easy to find. Bam Cap Group, Ivan Barrett, B-A-R-R-A-T-T. If you Google me, you'll find me. And uh, phone number still works as well. 317-762-2625. 317-762-2625.
0: Perfect. I'll put that all in the show notes. And thank you very much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I hope we can do it again sometime soon.
1: Absolutely. Anytime. It's my pleasure, Jim. Thanks, Ivan.
0: I had a fun conversation with Ivan. I really enjoyed listening to him and, and learning from him. You know, he talks about debt structure and bridge debt, and we've had a few guests that have talked about that. And he had, a, he had a different take, I think, than some in that bridge debt is fine if it's structured properly and it can be horrible if it's not. And so part of the uh, you have to find sponsors who evaluate that and communicate that to you because as an LP, a limited partner or the investor, you might not always have all the details and all the information. So you are relying on the sponsor. And it's critical to know that bridge debt does not equal bad, but it also doesn't equal good, right? You have to analyze it and figure out, is this the good kind of bridge debt that I can refinance out of, or I have options with, or is this the predatory kind that Ivan talked about where the bank or whoever's loaning to you, they're not aligned with you because they're thinking about, hey, how can we get them to default on their loan so we can take their asset? And that's not someone you want to invest. The other really interesting thing I think that Ivan talked about is the infinite return model versus recycling capital. And We've always talked about the infinite return model. You want to refinance as quickly as you can to get your capital back. And then you have infinite returns. Well, as Ivan explained, those infinite returns will be at a much lower yield potentially. And so it could be a better play to sell the asset, take your original capital plus your returns and invest it in something new that's going to have a higher yield. And that just kind of flips on its head the whole infinite returns model. Now that doesn't mean infinite returns model isn't a good one and it doesn't have velocity of money both have velocity of money both with the debt structure he's talking about and infinite returns versus a quick sale and recycle of your capital both of those are just different ways of looking at something and that's why i really enjoyed this conversation with ivan because he has a different perspective he makes you look at things differently and you shouldn't always just assume that bridge debt is bridge debt and infinite returns are the best you got to analyze everything and make sure you're a fit for the sponsor which is the other thing he talked about he has no problem moving on from an investor if they are not a fit for him and the same way an investor should move on from him if his philosophies and how he's going about things aren't a fit for the investor so i think ivan is really grounded and understands those types of issues and helps the investors understand it as well definitely excited to follow ivan see where he's going and reconnect with him again soon